You're listening to Thinking Biblically. Hello, everyone. This is Alan Gillen with Thinking Biblically for another week. Last week, I had a wonderful conversation with my son, Daniel. So you might want to check that out if you haven't already. Um, And before I introduce this week's guest, I want to remind you to remember to subscribe if you haven't done so already, Uh, whether you're watching this on video or listening to the audio version, uh, please do that. If If you're watching on YouTube, click subscribe and the notification bell so that you do not miss uh, any episode. And so uh, this week, I'm very happy to have with me Jonathan Van Maren, who is a public speaker, writer, and pro-life activist. His commentary has been featured on CTV Primetime, Global News, and the CBC, as well as dozens of radio stations and news outlets in Canada and the U.S. He's been translated into more than eight languages and published. He's published widely online as well as in print in publications including National Review, The Jewish Independent, National Post, The Hamilton Spectator, First Things, LifeSite News, The American Conservative, and The European Conservative, where he's also a contributing editor. Jonathan's received an award for combating anti-Semitism in print from the Jewish organization B'nai B'rith. He's the author of three books, The Culture War, as well as Seeing is Believing, Why Our Culture Must Face the Victims of Abortion, and more recently, Patriots, The Untold Story of Ireland's Pro-Life Movement. All these are available on Amazon. Jonathan Van Maren, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Well, last month, you posted an article, that I just, I just read this yesterday. It's called Learning from the Tragic Lessons of the 20th Century, in which you discussed, oh, by the way, that's... Uh, could be found on the European Conservative, and I'll provide the link to that in the description. Um, so uh, you're discussing in this article a recent book by Jewish Holocaust survivor Selma Van Peer. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name correctly. And her book's entitled My Name is Selma, The Remarkable Memoir of a Jewish Resistance, Resistance Fighter and Ravensbrück. So in this part review, part commentary, part personal reflection, Uh, You write the following. The 20th century is rapidly fading into the rearview mirror, especially as social media and 24-7 news cycle traps us perpetually in the tyranny of the present. A generation born in this century rather than the last one will soon be driving elections, setting the agenda and shaping the culture. Most of them will do so with virtually no knowledge of the past whatsoever. So I want to start by asking you this question. Is there something going on in our collective psychology that's unique in history? So, yes, there there actually is. And I hesitate to say that uh, just because uh, in a recent book uh, called Doom, the Politics of Catastrophe, Neil Ferguson said that anybody who uses the phrase unprecedented is just proving he hasn't read enough history. But I think it's fair to say that there has been no time in human history prior to now where young people have managed to uh, create their own culture completely impervious to penetration by adults, which means that youth culture is youth culture and that people are learning from attempting to impress, associating with their peers rather than with anybody from the older generation. Like, for example, I've seen more times than I can count you know, a group of, of younger people scrolling through their phones while they're sitting in the presence of grandparents who remember what it was like to, to live through World War II. But they're more interested in, you know, what their friends are saying on TikTok or, you know, what another friend had for breakfast or whatever than they are about the fact that they've got this, you know, deep well of wisdom, you know, sitting adjacent to them, a member of their own family who could share so many incredible things with them if they just asked. Uh, And yet they don't. So I do think technology has created parallel cultures inside of countries. And I think that is unprecedented. So this is this is different from what we used to call the generation gap, which is something that goes back to when I was a teenager. So it's not different from so much as a more totalizing version of it. Um, The generation gap has always existed, which is why there's always been, to some extent, art targeted at different generations. But the generation gap has widened because prior to that, uh, adults actually knew what their kids were up to, right? The generation gap was a visible thing. Now, with the creation of online ecosystems inhabited entirely by members of a specific generation, 
that is, has changed enormously. Like most of the parents um, I talk to about technology aren't even aware of what the last three or four social media platforms are, much less actually have any oversight as to what their, their kids are looking at. So just to give you an example that I, I think most of the listeners or viewers could relate to, almost every time there's a tragedy with cyberbullying or sexting or some news story involving, involving a peer tragedy, the parents always say, right, I had no idea. And I think that's actually true to the lar a large extent because people don't know what their kids are up to online. It also means that kids are absorbing information uh, that that parents aren't aware of, and and some it means kids are on the cutting edge of culture in the way that their parents aren't. Right. So to give another another current example, if you look at Abigail Schreier's book irreversible damage, the transgender craze seducing our daughters. There's an entire chapter or two with just parents saying, like, my kid decided to transition genders before I even knew what this whole gender ideology thing was all about. That's because their kids are on YouTube, they're on TikTok, they're following all these different influencers. Their parents don't even know what a YouTube influencer is. And so we've got these sort of parallel ecosystems of information. Parents are playing catch up. But it also just means that People aren't absorbing their values, their culture, their traditions from their parents or grandparents. They're absorbing it horizontally from their peers. And I, I think that has implications for pretty much everything. Yeah. And, and would you agree that I don't know what maybe you have a word to call these these enclaves mm. of. Well, we used to call these some of these things subcultures, you had the youth mm. subculture. But a subculture implies that there is a an overriding culture, and then you've got these branches. Uh -huh. And the way you've described it, these subcultures aren't connected to some wider culture. So somehow yeah. our new culture, if we could somehow draw a circle around all the, for now let's still call them subcultures, there are no connect, you're saying there's no connections. They're just separate bubbles within yeah. some larger thing. The technical term that's being used is silos, right? Okay. Um, and, and that also has a lot to do with, with the promulgation and rapid spread of, of conspiracy theories, which is because everybody's in their own information silos, right? And it's the sort of thing that now with the way social media algorithms work happens without you choosing it to happen. Right. You know, the algorithms provide you stuff based on past behavior. And so there's been a lot of discussion recently about left wing or right wing uh, like social media bubbles. Right. And a lot of what I find very interesting, even about myself, is that a lot of your behaviors and the views you sort of absorb by osmosis are going to be determined to a certain extent by what you're exposed to. And what you're exposed to isn't just what you're choosing to be exposed to. It's what you're being fed by the machine. So. That sort of creates it creates a, a a world in which you have to be extraordinary extraordinarily pardon me intentional um, about what you consume and seeking out other views and that just that's one of the reasons why we're all alone together um, and especially in people's homes you have people with radically different worldviews right like the idea that par uh, that children would not only find the views of their parents to be foreign but like inexplicably bigoted and racist. And like the number of stories you have of parents um, who discover their children actually think they're, they're part of the problem. Um, it's just, it's really quite mind boggling. And again, I know that, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of people uh, who could say all oh, the same thing happened during the sixties. Uh, and, and I know that's true, but it's different now because everything is exacerbated. Everything is torqued. And it's like a, so many trends that we've been seeing unfold uh, slowly but surely over the last half century are now going at warp speed and we have no idea what the smash up at the end of this will look like yeah so there's this could take us down all sorts of uh, different trails and uh, i think they're connected you know in an unconnected day there's actually so much that really is connected and but the thing that um and we we chatted before wanted mm. to discuss today going back to uh you doing a, a review of uh selma van de pair's book um, it, 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 it tweaks something in me that I've been wondering about, and I thought you'd be a really good person to, to discuss this with. And what it is, is there's a lot of, of cry even now that, um, one of the things we hear with regard to past totalitarian, uh, oppressive situations like the Holocaust, uh, people will say never again. And, and 
my family and I are from Jewish background, and this is just it's part of it's 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 more than a slogan. Um, and we want to see our society uh, make the necessary adjustments to avoid such a thing from ever happening again. And yet I think there's a misnomer that somehow uh, if we could just simply understand what happened before, mm-hmm. uh, then we could prevent that thing from happening again. The problem is rarely does that thing as it was reoccur mm-hmm. in a, in, at a later date. The, the, the next thing is not going to be like the last thing or some mm-hmm. other thing. And so when I was reading your your article, review, commentary on, on this book, uh, not only is there not a there not only is there this misnomer of uh somehow we could avoid repeating what happened in the past but we're so cut off from the past we're just lost yeah well there's so many different um ways to respond to that because one um when everybody's a nazi nobody's a nazi right and so one of the interesting things i have to explain that i know i've heard people say that but does everybody say that well so so it is interesting because if if you uh, have um you know the unfortunate occasion to to circumvent the twitterverse once in a while you you see that everybody refers to everything else as fascism like uh you know trump got compared to hitler all the time um you know this the rise of populism uh in in many places is always being likened to to the the the, like Anne applebaum who's a very well respected historian and i have some of her books here um called this our authoritarian moment and one of the one of the reasons for this and again this is why i say there's so many rabbit holes to go down is because i'm i'm quite persuaded that the reason uh, the term Nazi has become so ubiquitous in referencing those we disagree with is because since World War II, we have entered the post-Christian moment, and the Nazis are sort of like the last group of people that we can all agree were unambiguously evil, and thus it's it's now become sort of the, the moral inflection point, right? If if you want to say that somebody is bad, you can't call them a sinner, you can't call them wicked, we no longer have access to the moral terminology that was part of the Christian religion, and so instead— we have to use an agreed-upon moral slur to refer to somebody we think is doing a bad thing. So a Nazi is is like just calling somebody a Nazi is just calling them wicked without calling them wicked because we no longer agree that you can call anybody wicked because that's wicked. And the last sin that's left is judging somebody or calling somebody a sinner. And so that's one of one of the reasons that the term Nazi has become so ubiquitous in my view is it's just it's one of the last terms that everybody agrees on. It's why. Again, you, you can't just call somebody a communist and that be a meaningful term, right? Because if you look at the way we discuss politics now, there's like tax cuts and the Nazi. And on the left, like you can go as far left as you want to, and you never you never run into the anti-Semitic pogroms of, of Joseph Stalin, for example. It is that's not something that we that we ever discuss. And well, so there are just, there are if I can interrupt you, there are some other acceptable terms of if you want to make something look bad. Uh Sadly, uh, you're allowed to to use Zionist in a negative way. People get uh-huh. away with that one. Um, evangelical has become this new, very charged way to talk about a very narrow-minded, fundamentalist, kind of Christian-esque sort of person. That's allowed. Um, then, of course, there's a whole other list of things that are not allowed. Um, and I, I, we would agree there's all sorts of contradictions. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, part of the problem with calling everybody a Nazi is we don't even understand today what a Nazi was, let alone what a Nazi is. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. I do want to I want to try to get back of, to explore how is it possible to avoid being swallowed up by uh a new totalitarianism and we could discuss if it's already mm-hmm. upon us or is the first vestiges or are, mm-hmm. are we making that up um one of the things that i've been seeing and um i don't necessarily want to go down the covid trail either but we're all one of our joint one of our it's not a subculture we're all affected somehow everyone we could all talk about covid uh one way or another because we've all been affected by it it in one way or another and 
Um, there have been government restrictions imposed due to a perception about what COVID really is. And so there are some people that are already very nervous that we're already uh, as, oh, being oppressed by a totalitarian state. Um, be interesting to talk to you about, are, are we really, are these the first vestiges? One of the things that I've been saying mm -hmm as I've been watching how people behave is I've been using that famous metaphor of the frog being boiled slowly in the water. Mm -hmm. And I, and somebody told me, and I, I checked with Mr. Google and I found out that they were right, that it's actually a misnomer. This thing about put a frog in water, slowly heat up the water and they'll just stay there until they are boiled to death. Apparently that's a misnomer. The frog can feel the change in temperature and will jump out of the water before they're boiled. And so I came to the conclusion that we're actually dumber than frogs. <laughs> because it seems to me that that now fake metaphor is true for humans. We don't normally notice what's going on around us as there is cultural change. And we usually realize that we're being boiled too late. So, um Starting with the beginning of your question and, and then working my way down, I, I think one of the most encouraging phenomenon I've seen in terms of an examination of actual totalitarianism, um, who the Nazis were, what their ideology was, what motivated them, and then what essentially coerced or persuaded thousands upon thousands of their countrymen to either participate or stand by, uh, is, is, is the work of Dr. Jordan Peterson, which I think is important for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, he became a cultural phenomenon simply by taking a stand on something that had gotten hundreds of other people canceled. Uh, and it, it indicated that there was actually an appetite for dissent. Uh, there was actually an appetite uh, to support people who stood up and say no, because uh, the, I remember writing this at the time when, when Peterson first said, I'm not going to use pronouns that people tell me to use, not because I care so much about the pronouns, but because I will not be forced into using compelled speech. I thought, well, you know, it's, you know, He's going to hold out for a couple of months. They're going to fire him, and everybody's going to forget he ever existed. And instead, just, he just got to give, just things. to give, in case there are people out there that don't know mm -hmm. the story. So there was looming legislation, which in Canada federally that eventually passed, that was uh -huh. going to add a, a gender orientation and um, a gender identity uh, to um, our criminal code. And there was concern. Jordan Peterson, psychologist and University of Toronto professor. Uh, saw that this was going to result, he believed it was going to result in compelled speech by the government and you could get into legal problem uh, for refusing, um, not that he was ideologically opposed to using gender pronouns, that he has said that more than once, but he was against the idea of compelled speech. So he made some uh -huh. YouTube videos stating he would not be, he would not allow himself to use compelled speech. And that really put him into the in into the the public's eye um and you're saying if i understand correctly that while there were people that didn't like what he had to say he also uh demonstrated that there were people um that saw him as a hero because he was willing to stand up against what they felt was harmful ideology is that correct yes and far more who supported him then didn't. And the interesting, uh, the, the way this ties into the discussion about totalitarianism is that that's actually Jordan Peterson's primary field of study. His book, Maps of Meeting, his first um, and largely unread book that he wrote long before he became famous, was precisely about this. And he spent years attempting to work through why um, you know the the Holocaust was able to take place? Why other genocides took place? If you look at his list of recommended books, it's all gulags and mass graves and horrifying historical events, all the way down. He also recommends the the, the rape of Nanking by Iris Chang, which I I couldn't actually make it all the way through. And I've read I've read a lot of of, of pretty horrifying literature. And one of the things that, that he says, and, and he, again, he is saying this to an audience of millions of young people, is that one of the reasons that we are so incapable of understanding what took place is because we don't look inside our own hearts. We don't realize that we could have been um, um, Nazis, that it is more likely we would have been than not if you look at the number of people who resisted versus uh, the number of people who just stayed silent or participated, especially inside Germany itself, right? The resistance in other countries. Um, from you know Poland, the Netherlands, Denmark was quite prominent, but those were other countries resisting invaders inside Germany itself, where this all unfolded. Right, um, everybody's heard of the White Rose because there was only one White Rose. 
um, very few people did resist. And so Jordan Peterson's belief is that the, the first step to preventing something like this happening, the first step to never again is, is self-awareness, to truly understand ourselves, to plumb the depth of the human heart, which is Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who wrote Gulag Archipelago, said, right, the line between good and evil doesn't run through the population. It runs through the center of every human heart. And this is a profoundly Christian idea that, that Peterson um, is advocating, and, and he knows that, which is why he grapples so much with Christianity himself, and, and, and quite publicly so. But I think that one of the things we have to do, when, we always read history from the perspective of the heroes. And we never ask ourselves when we're reading these stories, if we may not have been the heroes or the victims, if we may have been the perpetrators, or we may have been the bystanders, uh, bystanders, pardon me. And we have a, a whole generation of people um, heading to Black Lives Matter protests and, and, and all sorts of other um, recent um, causes who are thoroughly and absolutely convinced that they would have been the heroes and that they are the heroes. And that as such, you know, they're willing to send all those who weren't perfect down the memory hole from Abraham Lincoln to there were statues of abolitionists getting torn down in Boston. Right. Um, and so a lot of the tearing down of statues isn't an act of historical desecration. It's an, it's an act of historical amnesia and a lack of self-awareness, right? This, this whole thing always gets framed as we're doing this because we are truly recognizing the past for what it is. And it's no, you're not. Uh, you're misunderstanding the past. You're misunderstanding who human beings are. And whenever you start to commit yourself to destruction in the name of righteousness, um, that's how all of this stuff starts in the first place. Okay, so there is this this element of the reckoning with the with our own human nature, our hum, the human heart. Mm -hmm. That that's a constant that has been since the garden. Going, you know, using the Bible as a reference, going back to the garden, um, we've had a heart issue all along. But the the cultural expressions of what the Bible calls sin, whether individually or corporately, that has been different. Now. Are, are you saying if we only if we could only reckon with our hearts and uh, be uh, nice and good believers and everything would be OK? No, I do think that like uh, so. So there's a whole there's a whole bunch of things here. And again, this, this ties into what we talked about in the beginning, which is um, silos of information. So let's let's take a recent example. Let's look at the, the response to the residential school um, revelations or I should say rediscoveries. Because, you know, quite a few years ago, the Truth and Re Reconciliation Commission in Canada revealed that many children had died in residential schools of disease, that many of them had been buried on the school grounds. Um, the, the various Indigenous groups have known for a very long time um, that children were buried on residential school grounds because, you know, they never came home or were sent home. Um, so this isn't particularly new. It is, however, fair to say that it's new to many of the people who were reading of the discoveries outside residential schools in Kamloops and elsewhere that there were children who were buried there. Um, and one of the things that, that did bother me is that a lot of the conservative response was, to my mind, reactionary and knee-jerk and missed the entire point of, of what was actually going on. And this comes, this boils down to the title of your podcast, which is Thinking Biblically, and then from that, thinking as a, as a social conservative. So for myself, the story of, of, of the residential schools is the story of the state deciding that parents and grandparents, extended families, were not equipped to raise their own children because they had distinct cultural differences. And it's important to point out here that we're not talking about the sorts of indigenous practices that took place. Um, you know, like we're not talking about an enslavement. We're not talking about a, a period uh, in which the, the indigenous peoples uh, ran their own groups and could do whatever they liked. Right? We're talking about a period uh, where the Canadian government is enforcing the law. Everybody is beholden to the same laws. And these children, because they are indigenous, um, were kidnapped from their homes, often forcibly, often as young as three years old, uh, were taken to state-run institutions. And in certain instances, the state actually uh, commissioned uh, different denominations to run these churches. So the Catholic, the Anglican, and the United Church denominations ran some of these schools, although not all of them. Uh, and these children were kept away from their families with the explicit intention of, in the words of, of, of one of the architects of this, of this program, to kill the Indian and the child, right? So as a Christian, as a social conservative, as somebody who is a member of a conservative Christian community that the government casts a disapproving eye at regularly, the, the moral of the story, the takeaway is, is obvious, right? Children were kidnapped from their parents. They were removed from the home. They, these bonds were severed 
from their parents, from their grandparents. People would go back to their homes, not being able to speak their native tongue, not being able to communicate with their grandparents or their older relatives. In some cases, couldn't even communicate with their parents. This is not difficult stuff. Um, whether or not the children were buried en masse or were buried in mass graves is not the point. Where were they buried? They were buried outside schools because the government didn't even bother to send the corpses home to their families. Um, so, so to bicker about the details, which is what this turned into, is just kind of a, a giant exercise in, in missing the point. Because if progressives say one thing, we must say something else, which is an asinine way of looking at anything, in my opinion, especially when it's an issue where Christians have something to say, um, especially when, when we have the terminology and the framework to explain why this was such a heinous crime, why it must never happen again, and why we must respond with total empathy. It's, it's Christians who have said that the family is, is, is such a, a fundamental institution that when you break it up, horrifying things happen, which is why you see you know, certain reserves have such a, uh, an issue with, with substance abuse. You see these broken families and the abuse rippling down two or three generations. I worked with somebody um, who had been, been to a residential school and he'd been you know, drinking hard liquor daily and in vast quantities for decades to deal with what he'd been through and his whole family uh, was chaotic. Yes, he has personal responsibility, but we have to realize that he is self-medicating for something that was done to his family by the state, right? And so this is an example of of the way I think that we need to, A, have a historical perspective, which is to say an accurate and a truthful one. And then also we do have to have an empathetic perspective. So uh, the, one of the things that really kind of did chill the blood was, was hearing people say, well, you know, not all these schools were all that bad. And I'm sorry, if somebody showed up at my house and took away my, you know, three-year-old uh, and took her away to a school and then she died of a disease, some of these schools had kids dying at 10 times the rate in the regular population because of the conditions at the schools. And then, you know, some some Christian conservative told me um, that it wasn't that big of a deal because lots of kids died from disease. I would be thinking very unbiblical Old Testament things um, <laughs> about such a person. Right. Like the lack of empathy that was involved in the knee jerk reactionary response, I think, was hugely problematic. And this is the case, I think, for so many of these discussions. And and here's where I'll say it's extremely dangerous for Christians to fall down this rabbit hole. And I think this is true for, for the Black Lives Matter issue. I think it's true for the residential schools issue. I think it's true for the issue of anti-Semitism. is when we respond knee-jerk to what progressives are saying, and we have to say the mirror opposite, or we have to qualify everything, or we have to tell the real story, what we're doing is we're just ensuring their narrative will reign supreme, right? The progressive narrative in all of these things is that Christianity is one of the key culprits. Uh, that, that Christianity is it can be equated to, to colonization. And that they would much rather have that story told than the story of this is what happens when the state forcibly breaks up families and separates children from their parents and separates children from, from their extended families. Um, that, that story is not one that they want told because progressives are quite a big fan of interfering uh, in families and getting between kids and parents. And it's something they do daily in public schools right across Canada and the United States. And so when we respond by telling survivors who are sharing their stories that they really shouldn't be as upset as the, as they are, uh, that that their terminology isn't right, um, you know that they they really should look at this in broader context. Um, then I think we make a huge mistake. We cede this territory to progressives, and we guarantee that any solution to this is not going to be informed by a biblical perspective. It's not going to be informed by a socially conservative perspective. It's going to be informed by the perspective of those who are actually taking survivor testimony seriously, which is a huge problem. Well, here, you know, hearing you describe um, what happened to our Canadian Indigenous peoples, uh, it, it all of a sudden it sounds so clear how, um, how wrong it was in the name mm -hmm. of Christianity. Uh, churches were supporting something that was clearly unchristian, unbiblical. And Christians and biblically minded people should be the first to do what you just did, to actually point that out. But in your experience, that has not been the case. Um, no, some of the publications I write for, three of them publish like terrible articles. Um, and, the, and I think the, there, was, there was two fundamental misconceptions. The first is that Christianity equals Western civilization. Uh, it is true that Western civilization is based on Christianity. It is not true that they are the same thing. They're not Christianity, No, yeah. Christianity looks different, culturally speaking, in different places. And so when you defend the system or excuse the system for saying they were doing a good thing, 
Um, like that's not what the gospel looks like. And that, that's just a mistake. And second of all is just that if progressives say this, we must poke holes in their narrative. Sometimes but, like, the but, media lies, but they don't always lie. Sometimes just things are the way that they are. Okay. Uh, are, are people, do you think they're consciously going, uh, if, if this news outlet says this, therefore I must say the other thing? That I can't be. So I, 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 I'll make a slight qualification. I think that they're saying if the CBC says it, it's not true because the CBC lies. Um, so it's, you think it's, got, that, it's really gotten to that that point? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Oh, absolutely. It has. Like, like the number. Of, like, it, it's kind of like it's the reason. And I don't want to go down this rapid trail, but just to give you an example, it's why nobody knows what to think about COVID because we have a crisis of authority. Right. You know, if we know that the, that news outlet X is lying about abortion, it's lying about all these other issues. Why wouldn't they lie about this? And if, that's not to say that they are lying. It's just to say that nobody knows who to trust anymore. Yeah, do you think they do you think, uh, you know, uh, Joe or, or Jane journalist knows he's lying on these issues? From your experience? No, I so I think that they're ideologically motivated. And so I do think it's true that in their coverage that they will report on on the facts most convenient to their narrative. And, and the, the, the big thing that journalists do is they choose who to quote. Right. Um, for example, uh, when you see all these churches being burned down after the, the residential school revelations and and a point that nobody in the mainstream media will bring up is there is not a single example of a, a genuinely aggrieved residential school survivor. Um, whose life, you know, was hijacked by the government, whose family broke apart as a result, setting a church on fire. What we've seen is there's been video footage of aggrieved white progressives who just want to burn churches anyways, setting stuff on fire, while indigenous leaders say stop burning down churches and, and especially stop burning down our churches. Now, an honest media would say, well, who is really burning down churches? But instead, what they do is they find somebody to say, well, we can understand why this is taking place, Right. Well, it depends on who's doing it, doesn't it? Okay, so, so we could talk about so many individual issues, and maybe I'm trying to bite off more than uh, we can chew, but I'm trying to get to the bottom of of some of the things that are, are fueling this in, this extreme polarization uh-huh. and these silos. And, and, you know, there's the, the young people cultural silos. Uh-huh. There's the, the silos of, of in journalism and media. Um and then there's the, these well-meaning onlookers, the, the kind of person that wants to get to the truth. And it's just it's interesting that um, I have to admit, until you so well explained uh, what I think is a biblical view of how to respond to the residential school tragedies, I hadn't put all those pieces together. Uh, so you did it so well. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad you did that. And I, I'm. I want to explore that myself further, maybe in podcasts and so and so on, and 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 bring that sort of thing to more people's attention. But there's there's something missing in our toolkit that that we don't know. It seems how to interact with the world that we live in and properly. Now, whether people ever were able to, because obviously they didn't in the Second World War and other times when the totalitarian monster has swallowed up a society but we think we're so intelligent that's another layer you know, right well we have we have more information than anybody in any human his, any point in human history but we have less discernment also because it's difficult to know on subjects that you or yourself are not an expert in what to believe like there are issues relating to covid that i genuinely have no idea what to think because I see people who are purportedly experts on both sides of the same question. I don't know as much as either of those people do about an issue. And then it's very, very difficult. And that's why, uh, from a thinking biblically perspective, when it comes to some of the, all the hot button racial issues, for example, because we're talking about, you know, bigotry and, and, and racism and things like that. Um, I, for me, I always come at things from a historical perspective because that's my background, right? That's my education and that's how I look at things. And I see a lot of people that are, uh, there's a lot of conflation of terms. There's a lot of knee-jerk responses, right? Um, and there's a lot of, of, of epic missing the point, right? Even with the residential schools, like let's say that a journalist used the term mass grave and the children were actually buried en masse. Who cares? It doesn't, like, it's not a point worth responding to. Um, and by, by saying, oh, see, they were wrong here. Okay, I know, but like what's, 
Who cares if they were wrong there? The, 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 the fundamental point of the matter is we're talking about kids that were kidnapped from their parents by the government. Like that's that's the essence of this. And I see this with a lot of the I'm very uncomfortable with a lot of the narratives surrounding um, like the, the response to Black Lives Matter in the U.S. as well, because it seems to me that you're either Black Lives Matter, which is, a you know, an organization that that's, that that advocates the destruction of the nuclear family. They're very pro-abortion. They're all they're pro all sorts of wicked things that I think are terrible. But then on the other hand, you have people who are saying like people who are saying I'm against critical race theory, which I'm very against, but they use the term critical race theory to encompass all discussion of the historical circumstances surrounding injustice, um, which is just a, a way of avoiding difficult discussions entirely. Right. Like I and again, I come at this as a person who's studied his own family history and is into history. And if my father, for example, was telling me stories about how he'd been beaten to his knees trying to vote. Right. Um this is not history yet. It's living memory. I, I would I would see my country a different way. I would I would have like very visceral reactions uh, to being told that everything's always been great. Well, maybe it has for you, but it hasn't been for my family. And the idea that, you know, we've been we have been subjugated for most of history. And now suddenly those barriers have been removed and we're expected to catch up. Right. Like Again, when only when only the Marxist side is admitting there is a problem to be addressed, only Marxist solutions get considered. And so what social conservatives and Christians should be doing is, what is a holistic, truthful, historically informed view of this that isn't critical? The reason critical race theory is being considered by some is because they're the only ones putting forward a framework by which to understand this. And we should be putting forward a biblical framework to understand this that doesn't just say, shut up and or just repent or just ignore all of this history, like I'll, to give you an example of where I come from on this, I was interviewing a uh, 95-year-old George Walker a couple of years ago. He has since passed away, um, but he was the first African-American to win the Pulitzer Prize for music. And um, he was telling me about what it was like to grow up under Jim Crow and things like that. And then he told me his grandmother grew up as a slave on a southern plantation. And he actually had asked her, like, what was it like to grow up as a slave on a southern plantation? And, and she said they did everything but eat us. And, and the thing that's so exceptional to me about that is I'm talking to an old man who heard it firsthand. Right. Like there's one human link between me and this injustice. And so it's wrong to say that injustice should define everything forever. And, you know, we need to we need to strive for equity rather than equality. Um, you know, there's when when, there, when an injustice exists, there's an opportunity for so many poisonous solutions that happen to suit the ideological uh, predisposition of those calling for them. But when we say, well, we, 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 we can't talk about that or we shouldn't talk about that or that's all critical race theory. That's also a huge problem because history informs us. We are all a product of our environment, right? Like I'm a Dutch reformed person uh, and, 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 you, and, you're, and you're, you're a Jewish person. We can have a huge discussion about how those collective experiences have made us who we are. But when it comes to, to groups that have suffered injustice in the recent past, and by recent past, I, I mean, it's still memory. It's not history yet. As in there are people li like living who went through these things. And our response is to tell them that they should just join the American dream or I guess you should be so grateful things are better now. And we don't allow them to, to, to have these conversations without calling the Marxists. I don't know. It, 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 I think conservatives are doing themselves a huge disservice when they do this. It's good. It's great. Clickbait. Lots of people are going to read you. There's a real market for 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 uh, conservatives telling everybody else that everything's OK and it's fine. And don't worry, it's not as bad as you think. And they're just all Marxists. But that's not a way to have a meaningful conversation. It's not thinking biblically. And it means that we're just we don't have a seat at the table when fundamentally important discussions are taking place. OK, so it seems to me that one of the issues here is what's happened. And um, I don't remember what it was what it was like when I was what younger. And maybe there's other people that would know. But it seems to me that media, whether it's mainstream media uh, and more traditional media that a portion of the society still engages or the newer media which is mainly social media of the younger generations uh what's happened is media is the new reality there uh -huh. is no other reality and i think one of the things i'm hearing and it sounds like it's a passion of your heart is you've reached out to living memories you've sought to understand the world by going to people like this George Walker or mm -hmm. or uh, or Selma and you've 
learned about not only their personal experiences, but how their personal experience interfaced with a reality of experience bigger than themselves. But now all we have is, you know, scrolling through people's phones. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I half make a joke, you know, I'll, I'll sound like an expert on a subject because I read a headline. Mm-hmm. I know something happened because the headline told me. And people are good with that. Um, uh, some time ago, I, I wrote uh, an article called uh, Truth in a Soundbite Culture, where I determined that it can't be done. You yeah. cannot capture truth, which is also reality, in a soundbite. But now, not only it's we, the soundbites have gotten shorter and shorter mm-hmm. and shorter, these little quips of information, and that is how people are perceiving the world around them. Now, you, I know you already agree. But what's the uh, what's the antidote to this? It's false. It's a it's mm. people are living in a lie. Yeah. So there's a couple of things that I think um, are are helpful. The first of all, first thing we have to do is when we're having these fights, discussions, debates, arguments about things, everything from critical race theory to the residential schools. Uh, to anti-Semitism is we need to define our terms properly so that we know what we're actually discussing to begin with, right? Um, so when somebody says, I oppose critical race theory, well, so do I. I oppose it as, as a Marxist framework for understanding history because that's not how I understand history. However, um, do you mean that somebody bringing forward legitimate grievances that may need social address, is that also critical race theory? Like, I need to know what we're talking about. Um, and there are uh, there are quite a few Christian writers who basically say the solution to racism is repentance and we all just need to move on. We don't need to talk about this anymore. Um, and, 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 and here's where I think it's interesting is there is a difference between racism and prejudice that often gets missed. So racism is like the actual belief that you're superior or somebody else is inferior from a different racial or ethnic group, right? Um, and so if you are a person who thinks that, that that racial or ethnic group X is genuinely inferior to you or that you are superior to them, you are guilty of the sin of racism. And yes, you need to repent. It's a sin. However, prejudice is often formed by cultural assumptions. It's formed by personal experiences. And the solution to prejudice is education. So I'll, I'll give you one example. Um from where, where I grew up in, in, in British Columbia, there was um, one indigenous reserve nearby and there was it was associated with a lot of crime. A couple of the major organized crime outfits operated off of that reserve. Um, I know I, like dozens of people, including many family members who had things stolen and those stolen things turned up on the reserve. And so for a lot of people, their view of indigenous people was shaped by this experience and the fact that the reserve that they were closest to was renowned for 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 all of these things. Well, Most of us grew up not hearing about residential schools, having no context for why their community was the way that it was, um, not understanding the intergenerational trauma. And so while recognizing that sin is sin and personal responsibility is personal responsibility, the historical context for why um, some of these places are the way they are is hugely important, gives you an enormous amount of empathy and helps you to understand what's actually going on, right? Most of most of these people would have said, I, no, I don't think I'm, I'm better than, than person X for, from this area. Um, but they're pre, like prejudice, prejudge. The assumption is, oh, that person's from there, therefore probably, you know, you know, pick pick your stereotype, right? Substance abuser or um, or small time criminal or what have you, right? Well, the solution to that is is education, not just repentance, because they don't think I, by virtue of being a white, black, brown person, are better than this person because they're indigenous. No, it's just a well. Those people don't obviously don't have it all together, and this is where you know all kinds of terrible things happen. So there's a difference between racism and prejudice. And the reason it's so important to define our terms is because different solutions are necessary. Yes, if you're a racist or you hold racist views, you need to repent for those views um, because racism is a sin. However, um, prejudice is something totally different um, because prejudice is informed by um personal experiences that may not be accompanied by historical context because it's often uh, cultural assumptions that are passed down from generation to generation uh, based on, on on a simple lack of understanding, which, by the way, very much goes both ways. Um, I think that, that, that 
we need to define our terms because otherwise we won't have the right solution. So when you have Christian speakers that are saying uh, repentance is the only answer, that's just a cheap and easy way of avoiding the really hard work that it takes to genuinely understand people from different groups and from different experiences, right? Like one of these guys just said, you know, racism is no, uh, no different of a sin than hating your neighbor or racism. There's no difference between hating a racist um and and uh and, and a racist um hating a black person well yeah on a, on a spiritual moral level it's the same sin but i think we can all agree that some hatreds are more dangerous than others right that the, the anti-semitism has resulted in at least six million murdered just in one four to five year period so i think we can safely say that hating and um ha- hating hating somebody who was perpetrating the holocaust is different from a practical social cultural perspective um, than, than hating Jews, right? Like, and, and, and so a lot of very difficult discussions are being dodged. It's, it's too cute by half. It's lacking context. And it just means we're not contributing anything meaningful to the conversation. The second solution I think to this is something you're very familiar with, because I've worked um, with many of your progeny on these projects, which is doing pro-life work. The way that we communicate with people who support abortion and are post-abortive is is not is not specific to the abortion debate. It's the way we should communicate with anybody, right? You use common ground, uh, you establish common ground, you use analogies, and you ask questions. And I've, I, it's interesting. I've seen so many people who are so good at discussing abortion be so terrible at discussing anything else, simply because they, they it suddenly becomes a, a, a zero sum game fight when they're discussing critical race theory or they're discussing residential schools or COVID or, you know, whatever, you know, pick, pick the major issue of the last 12 months. There are many. Um, and I'm like, if you would just communicate with the person you're talking to, like you communicate with somebody who just defended killing babies on the street, you would have a fantastic conversation. Yeah, um, let me, let me restore a little bit of context here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, some of my, my kids, uh, adult children have been involved uh, with, uh, you and and uh, the Canadian Center of Bioethical Reform and in seeking to bring the truth about preborn children to gra- people, just people. <clears throat> and I've seen, I, I've you know I've heard some of the talks, I've been to some of the meetings, I've interacted with my own children, I've talked with you, and uh, the amount of of work that's gone into properly educating uh, the the people presenting the pro life view has been a astounding and wonderful, really grappling with the issues, and then really understanding how to talk to people and how to respect people um, and to, to, pre- to present a different viewpoint of a very difficult, highly charged issue in a winsome and engaging way. Now, of course, the, the detractors would say, oh, it's manipulative, but it, you know, we know it's not. It's actually mm-hmm. quite loving, it's intelligent, and, and, and highly respectful of people who share a different view. Now, what you've done, or and by my now explaining that, going back to you're saying that at least part of the solution is education, we need to take the time to properly educate ourselves and others to all these other issues as well. The problem is, but we don't, we're such, we're so busy, you know, I'm so busy, I'm on my, I gotta scroll, you know? And uh, we're busy, busy, busy. Of course, we're binge watching who knows what for hours and hours and hours, but we're busy, busy, busy. And we're not taking the time to properly educate ourselves. Now, with, with the time remaining, there's still two big questions, of course, maybe hopefully in, in the future we'll, we'll, we'll talk again. Uh, so there's the, what kind of work do we need to do to do a better job at properly understanding issues so we can engage people properly? Uh-huh. But I, I think we first need to discuss with where are we going? Because I don't think that educational thing is is happening and maybe will happen with enough people anytime soon. I, it seems to me that there is a totalitarian snowball rushing down the hill, getting bigger and bigger. Do you have a sense of where things are going? Well, I'll, I'll back up just a tiny bit before I get to that one. Um, because thinking biblically is, is, is the theme of the podcast. And no, broad like broad education is very, very difficult, right? Um, especially because, yeah, people are very entrenched 
in, in their specific ideological silos. But, but thinking biblically should rise above ideology. It, it will absolutely inform ideology, but it shouldn't be ideological inherently. And one of the points I want to make just for the listeners that's been very helpful for me, because this has been a, a, like a decade-long process of evolution for me on many of these issues trying to think through. And as you point out, um, hundreds and hundreds of interviews that I've done to try and understand the, these things, which is where, where a lot of my views come from. Um, is a lot of terminology that's used by the left is like they, they're actually as Christian equivalents to those terms that would help us to, to better think through these things as people trying to think biblically. So when somebody talks about like lived experience, which is the sort of the, the new uh, the, the new left wing term for, well, what this person says, we must immediately legislate from. Right. Lived experience is just what we understand out in the streets talking to people about abortion, that nobody nobody is going to talk about abortion without coming from their own personal context. They may have had an abortion. They may know somebody who had one. And so just apply that to an indigenous activist you're talking to. <laughs> Excuse me, like what, what, what was their personal experience, right? Where do they come from? What, what, what is informing their emotions when they talk to you? Uh, another thing that I think we should do a much better job of is fundamentally uh, the, the, the both conservative and, and Christian um, virtue of gratitude, which is, we need to be extraordinarily like we are really knee jerk to the term privilege. Like I don't have any privilege. I'm like, no, but privilege could be properly understood in the Christian context as just a blessing. Like the reason I am where I am is because God gave me two parents. Those parents stayed together. Uh, they loved me. I had a huge extended family. Um, they, they taught me how to work. They taught me how to save. Um, like, as I, I made, I kind of joked uh, in my thank you speech at my wedding, everything I did wrong was in spite of their example. Um, and everything I did right is because of their example, <clears throat> because they tried to teach us all these things. Well, what did I do to deserve that? When, when, when so many young Indigenous people my age grew up in broken homes with substance abuse, with, with anger, um, like had to experience basically the full fallout of the family breakdown perpetrated by the state. What makes me worthy of what I got rather than that nothing, which means that properly understood, I didn't do anything right that they did wrong. I was just extraordinarily bl like blessed in a way that I did not deserve by God. And if Christians realize that, you know, no, I think white privilege is a garbage idea. However, privilege as an idea just reflects why did God give some of us more than others? And what is our responsibility with what God has given us to reach out, to understand, um, that's a Christian concept because look, Marxism didn't come up with anything new. It just ripped off Christian concepts um, <clears throat> and made them terrible. Satan is not a good inventor. He only hijacks. And so I think we need to recognize that so many, uh, there's a Christian way to understand these things that's right there in front of us. If we would just stop reacting like a jellyfish that gets poked every time um, something comes up. In terms of totalitarianism, this is such a, uh, such a tricky subject because I'm not in the camp that thinks that, that the COVID lockdowns were a trial run um, for, for, for some sort of um, lockdown regime. We live in a Westminster parliamentary democracy, and we're going to see some far more significant early warning signs uh, <laughs> um, that, than what we have seen thus far. What I do think, um, COVID, COVID has shown us a couple of things as Christians. First of all, the fact that we are in a, in a society so post-Christian that nobody even understands why Christian worship is important anymore at all. Um, people do not understand why going to church is any different than going to a football game or a theater or anything else. I wrote an article about this for, for Convivium magazine. That's because roughly 5% of Canadians actually attend church weekly. 89% uh, of Canadians attend no kind of religious service, even monthly. 89%. 89%. And that means they don't attend uh, like they don't attend a mosque, they don't attend a synagogue, they don't attend a church, they don't, nothing. And so uh, COVID has been uh, an apocalypse in terms of it has, it has revealed so many things to us at the same time. And we're struggling to keep up with the rate of revelation. So we've realized we're in a post-Christian society where one of the reasons a lot of politicians simply didn't factor in Christian worship to the reopening plans is because they didn't think about us. Second of all, when the general public hears about Christians, it's not about the soup kitchens. It's not about the charitable giving. It's not about the nonprofits. What they hear about is Redeemer University still hasn't gotten bored with homosexuality 20 whole years after the rest of Canadian society did, right? The only time 
the Canadian public hears about Christianity. It's, you know, Trinity Western or Redeemer University. It's the progressives ramping up the crowd to persecute everybody once again because they're refusing to get on board with the program. And they're not on the right side of history, even though we've got 2,000 years on our side and they've got two decades on theirs. Um, so that was another revelation. The third one is that people are so terrified they were totally willing to be locked down entirely, right? One of the things that a lot of libertarians and social conservatives and Christians missed about the lockdown debate is that they were supported by wide margins, wide margins of the Canadian public. And that even if you took uh, the polls that showed the least level of support for, for lockdowns, it was still pushing 80%, which is insane to me. Um, but but it is what it is. And so looking at that information, what does that information tell us about the state of society, about the way the majority of Canadians think, right? That's the, the really interesting questions take a lot more analysis and a lot more discussion than these are all sheeple and, and you know, they don't care and we're going to sleepwalk into a totalitarian regime. So like, well, why, though? And my, my firm belief, actually, is that what we're seeing take place is we're, we're only a decade or two into, into an almost totally post-Christian world. We are starting to discover what a post-Christian world looks like. And we should be watching very carefully and also... Um, attempting to think biblically and figure out how to respond. Because if uh, 89% of Canadians attend no religious services at all, and the vast majority of Canadians don't know anything about the Christian story or the Christian worldview, so at some level that has to be our fault. Um, because uh, there's a lot of people who are willing to spend a lot of money to send missionaries overseas, but they maybe they should take a look at Toronto. Yeah, so... Um... I think it's really good that you pointed out uh, for those that are associated with the, the for the churchgoers, for the religiously minded minority, it's important to understand that we are in a minority, and that's why we don't get maybe the center stage and, and the right mm -hmm. kind of attention that we think we deserve. Well, because we're in our silo, we tend to think there's way many, way right. more of us. Right, it's like, that makes I, sense. I see anybody sure. on my Facebook page who supports lockdowns. It's like, but, well, that makes sense. But there is something else that's happened, and and this could springboard to a, a much longer discussion, and that is the, um, what's happened is it's not that long ago that, uh, for good or for ill, the church and family basically ran mm -hmm. the social life, health, education um, of most people in our country. Now it's probably true in the, in the United States as well, but through. The, the decades we've seen a shift of those responsibilities being passed on to government and i'm concerned i'm concerned mm. that uh you know people call it the nanny state and, and it's like that so now we have um the premiers of our provinces the governors of, of, of states they're deciding for us when it's safe to go outside and when we have to stay inside and and all these various things that grandma used to tell us what to do and, and mom used to tell us what to do uh, but now they're t now it's the state that thinks they have uh, uh our best interest in mind uh, i remember i might have already mentioned this on on the podcast i don't know but it really it really st stuck in my mind so we're in ontario our premier is is uh, premier ford and uh whatever people think about halloween it was before halloween and there was a question whether people could be free to to go let their kids go door to door um, trick-or-treating and he made a comment where he said if basically if anything bad happens because we're opening the society for Halloween <laughs> who are they going to come to and he pointed to himself and I thought oh no this one man thinks he's personally responsible for the health and welfare of the what is 17 million people of the province of Ontario like what has happened to us well, but the other side of that is 14 million of those people are going to hold him personally responsible if anything happens. That's the problem, right, is is the state has moved into a vacuum that's been voluntarily vacated. And that's where I think – so I agree with everything you're saying. My only quibble with some people would be I don't think this is nefarious. I know enough about the inner workings of politics as do as – do, uh, um, like several, several of, of your kids have also worked in politics. Um, and, and we can tell you that what happens behind closed doors does not amount to, to some sort of grand conspiracy. It's a bunch of people bumbling around trying to figure out how to hang on to enough voters to get elected next time. And 
that's the difficulty is what do you do when the nanny state is being called for? Like, what do you do when people don't have to be broken to love Big Brother, but just do? I'm, I'm going to interrupt you here. because I think it's a really great point. And I've heard this over and over and over again by people that I've known, my own kids, others, that the the and sorry, our beloved elected officials, that it appears the prime motive for an elected official is to get reelected. Mm-hmm. And so they have to play the the popularity game within their writings. And, and we don't have time to get into all those um, uh, in- intricacies because they are quite fascinating. And most from my experience, most Canadians don't understand how this oh. actually works and why they say the things they say and don't say the other things they don't say, why they ignore certain issues and why they focus on other issues. And it's all very politically charged. So you've so the now what we have is people who are so politically motivated being looked to for our health and welfare when it was when it was grandma and grandpa when it was uh, when it was mom and dad they had a different kind of vested interest in the mm-hmm. welfare of their grandchildren and children mm-hmm. which now of course there were nefarious things happening too and sin is reality and people are broken mm-hmm. that's true it wasn't a perfect system but it is the biblical system of care of individuals is primarily the family. And mm-hmm. what's happened now is, first of all, family itself has, has been crumbling, and which is one of the reasons why yep. the, it's allowed the government to take over. But now we've got the government taking charge of our personal welfare. Yep. And we have people, I've heard them within um, within a religious context within church context basically saying the government no the government has our best interests in mind and we should just do what the government says and you know what sometimes maybe they do and sometimes maybe they're saying the right thing but i'm concerned that we've bought into a new way of thinking that mom and pop government loves us so much to to do the the best thing for us and that's just it, it can't work that way Government doesn't have the ability, even by the sheer numbers, to oh, yeah. to care for its citizens at that level. Well, it's untenable. It's bad. It's you know bad from an ideological perspective, from a biblical perspective. But again, um, it's what I always have to remind uh, my my like, like Christians are like, look, there's there is not that. Well, you said we're a minority. We're a micro minority, right? Like maybe like five percent of people think just like you, right? And like that is like and. Again, part of part of the reason I think that we 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 assume there's many more of us than there are is because so many Canadian Christians consume American media, and in in America there's like a minimum of like there's more evangelicals in the U.S. and there are people in this country, right? So there there's this because because we're sleeping with the elephant as Pierre Trudeau famously said. There's a lot of Canadian Christians who are like, why can't we have a you know fill in your conservative Christian politician here because we're not that country. Because there's not enough of us, because we don't have the voting power, we don't have the money clout, like we don't have any of the infrastructure that they have in the U.S. We don't have the media ecosystem they have in the in the U.S. That's why. So I think that once you understand the reasons that Canada is so different, and that many of the things that you're describing are taking place, we you at least start to get a handle on 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 what you can fight and what you can't fight. I don't really have any confidence whatsoever that if this variant proves whatever more infectious or what have you that they're not going to do another lockdown and that it won't be called for right you already see this happening as the health officials say things and instantly like twitter facebook the comments underneath these articles reporting a new variant or whatever are swarming with people saying how can ford how can kenny how can these people be so irresponsible as to keep us open right you know like alberta's getting rid of all of their their restrictions and there's outrage that these restrictions are being gotten rid of. Like the vast majority of the outrage that happens is when the politicians decide to give people their freedom back. And so I think we have to recognize that the politicians are responding to the demands of the people. And there's no bad guy. The bad guy is us. Right. Like, you know, like that the left wing, we are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the bad guys. It's the population. It's the population right. demanding that Jason Kenney shut things down, demanding that Doug Ford shut things down. And so. At the end Good of the day, this isn't, this isn't the people versus the tyrants. This is the people. It's Doug Ford and Jason Kenney are doing that old, there's that old joke, right? They're my people go and I must follow them because I am their leader. Like that's what's happening here with these lockdowns. A lot of right-wing leaders held out pretty long um, before they basically got browbeaten into closing it down. So talk to your fellow Canadians, folks. They're the problem.
So, so actually, what we have is you've made a case that the nanny state's empowered by the people. Yeah. And so, if I'm concerned about the nanny state, I'm actually should be concerned about the people. Which brings us back. So, one of you know, you were talking about how a lot of Canadian Christians think there's there's more of us because we are in such proximity to the United States. Uh, but I just want to make clear that uh, from a thinking biblically perspective, my mm-hmm. concern. Uh, is not just for people of faith. My concern is for people because uh-huh. uh, we're being led in a, in, I believe in a very uh, destructive way that what's been happening and it's it's circular. So we're being told certain things, buying into them, fueling the politicians and around and around we go. Uh, we're self-destructing. Uh-huh. And how, you know, what can we do to avert the disaster? But I guess we're going to have to leave it at that for now. That's that is another <laughs> podcast because there's so many different uh, ways to to examine that question because that discussion boils back to the sexual revolution, um, what it has done to our society, what it is doing. I guess to summarize for our listeners to try and put a bow on it, what we're seeing right now is society, Western civilization, was once based on revelation, on Judeo-Christian values. It is now based on revolution. And what we're seeing right now is a great realignment from revelation to revolution. Those of us who are still committed to revelation, I'm thinking biblically, however, must always hold the new standards of the day to the old standards that we've abandoned and call people back to the truth. Yeah, so so much of what you said is so helpful, but I'd like to remind everybody of of one thing that I I think I've picked up here. So there's all all these things going on, and one of the things uh, for the individual, whether a person of faith or not, is we've been made to feel so, so, so small. And I think some of that is because of the media, gives us a particular impression. But what you, uh, Jonathan, have, uh, what you've been an example of is um, we can engage. We can engage at a personal level, whether we're doing it officially by doing interviews like this one and you've reached out to certain people. But if we only would take the time to get to know our neighbors and listening to their stories and investigating actual, not just reading the news and scrolling through social media, but actually getting to know people and listening to their stories. And then as as biblically minded people to be um, to be investigating the scriptures and praying and seeking God and seeing what is the difference that I can make or my family can make or my church can make or, mm-hmm. and so on. And uh, we don't have to be swallowed up. And I think that's mm-hmm. one of the things you discover when you're talking to Holocaust survivors. Mm-hmm. They didn't get swallowed up and we wanted to see, well, how did you do it? And that's mm-hmm. something that I, I want to investigate for myself and for others a lot more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so grateful for having you on. Um, how could people get in touch with you? Uh, my email is easiest. Um, so I'm on social media. Um, I have a Facebook page that people can follow if they'd like. But my email is jvanmaren, V-A-N-M-A-R-E-N, at endthekilling.ca. Endthekilling.ca, for those curious, is the pro-life group I work for. Yeah, and so you, we've, you know, you've mentioned all these interviews you've done. I've listed uh, various uh, publications you've been associated with. Is there any way besides emailing you that people could begin to investigate your writings, videos, interviews? Yeah, so I, I put all of that on one website called thebridgehead.ca. Uh, a bridgehead, I discovered after I picked the name that a lot of people didn't know what it is. A bridgehead is a position that must be defended, but is entirely surrounded. And so that's where the name comes from. Very good. So it's thebridgehead.ca. So both yes. your email and your website, I'll put in the description below. Thank you so much for doing this, and hopefully we'll be able to do this again soon. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So again, great thanks to Jonathan Van Maren for joining me today. Please reach out to him. All the information is down below. And you can also reach out to me uh, by emailing me at comments at Torabytes. No, wrong. That's my other. <laughs> Do check out Torabytes.org. That's something else. But you could email <laughs> me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. And I'll be very happy to um to uh, discuss with you anything that uh, you're interested in. Do check out earlier um, episodes of this podcast and do remember to subscribe so you don't miss so you don't miss any in the future. And so until then, this is Alan Gilman for thinking biblically.